The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2L and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I am down here in Palo Alto today at the um, Institute for the Future, which I can tell you is a very cool space. And today I'm going to be speaking with a gentleman named Bob Johansson, who is a distinguished fellow at the Institute for the Future and uh, multi-time author. We're going to talk a little bit about the Institute and uh, some of his book writing endeavors. But first of all, welcome, Bob, and thank you for doing this. Good to have you here, Aaron. Happy to have this exploration. Me too. Uh, and it's funny, just as by way of back story, I found out about you via my sister-in-law, um, Caroline Starner, and she spoke um, glowingly of you. And so I looked you up online and did some research. And I think I reached out to you originally back in February or March, and it's taken us a few months to, <laughs> to get to this point. But the, yeah. the worthwhile people are worthwhile pursuing. So I'm glad we were able to finally do this. I do want to ask you about the Institute um, and doing some research on you that it looks like you've spent the better part of about 45 years uh, at the Institute for the Future. Let's start by talking about what it is. Um, I know you've got all these great visuals on the wall and really cool space just as I walk through, but you know what, what uh, started it and what is it about? What's the purpose? So the Institute was a spinoff of RAND Corporation and, and SRI in 1968. So it was kind of during that boom NASA turmoil year of 68. And it was a spinoff uh, of classified military research. And one of the ideas was to bring the Delphi technique and cross-impact matrix analysis, the various early tools of futures research, to bring those to a public audience and a wider audience. Uh, I joined five years after it founded. Um, it was originally in, uh, in, in Connecticut, actually, on the campus of Connecticut Wesleyan University. Uh, but uh, they quickly found out that all the futurists wanted to live in California, so, <laughs> so I moved out to California. Uh, and I joined five years later in 73, but I've had five different careers here. We're basically a futures think tank, the, now the longest-running futures think tank in the world, as best we can tell. So 50 years of doing this. Uh, we're intentionally small. There's about 50 full-time and about 100 or so less than full-time around the world. Uh, we're focused 10 years ahead on most of our projects. We've got a foundational forecast that we do every year, and then we do various custom adventures and we do books and talks and games and maps and videos and all different ways of exploring the future. Well, it's fascinating. And uh, you've spoken to this a little bit, but, you know, in saying that you've had several different careers, but it's rare that anyone stays someplace for five years now, never mind 45 years. So, you know, what is it that's kept you here all of those years? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I don't look at it that way because it, it, being in a place like this is a little like being in a law firm. It's not so much at, that you're at the law firm. It's what cases you work on. And my career, so when I first came here, I was one of the first uh, PhD level social scientists studying the Internet. And we were studying in the 70s what came to be called social media. We called it computer conferencing then. Uh, and it was only scientists who could use it and defense contractors. but And then I ran the Institute for eight years and then asked uh, our board to let me go back to doing what I love to do, which is write books and 
do public talks, uh, do custom forecasts. I usually do a couple of those at a time. Um, so it, it, it's, it's just a um, kind of boiling, uh, um, amazingly magnetic place. Uh, you never know who you're going to run into here on any given day. Um, and each time I have had an offer to go somewhere else or have thought about going somewhere else, I figured out something better I could do within this structure. So, so it really is a project-driven, program-driven place. Um, it's a platform, really. It's, so it's really more of a platform than an, than an institution. And it's a platform for starting great conversations about the future. And um, I've never found a better one. So, so why, why move platforms? <laughs> So I have a question, if you don't mind me indulging, that wasn't on this, but you know, it was spurred by what you were just saying, and that is, I've been someone over the last twenty-five years that's grown up in you know digital and and really tried to explore trends early days, and I think what's an interesting balancing act, and I'd love to get your take on this, is when do you know that the future has sort of arrived, and then you move on to the next horizon, right? So it's how do you find that balance, that distance between. You know, what does social media offer? What does mobile offer? What does AR, VR, and all these other things? So what's your framework for thinking about, you know, how you stay practical enough but ahead of the curve enough to, to be able to be, you know, pragmatic? Yeah, so first thing we distinguish between trends and disruptions. So a trend is a pattern of change you can extrapolate from with confidence. We're interested in trends, but we don't really focus on trends. Trends are the easy part. What we focus on are the disruptions, which are the breaks in the pattern. So if you think of technology disruptions, we look at them when they're blobs on the horizon and you don't know what to call them and you're just trying to make sense about what's happening. When the blob starts to take shape and starts to become a market, uh, we get less interested. Uh, so, and as something becomes commercialized, we're looking, we're off looking for the next, the next blob on the horizon. So that's roughly how we do it. Um, you can see, um, as the blobs start to take shape, you can see a different kind of person moving in. You know, usually it's the change the world people at the early stage, and we really like the change of the world people. Um, as the commercial people run in, come into the field, you know, they're really necessary to scale the field, but we start to get uncomfortable. So, uh, and by the time it becomes successful commercially, we're off off looking at something else. So this is not the way to make money in the world, by the way. <laughs> this is uh, the way to have an interesting career and to do interesting things. But in the futures business, the way to make money is to do a single methodology, trademark it if you can, and then sell it over and over again and focus further in than we do. We're an independent nonprofit, so we don't have that pressure. Uh, we've got a lot more interesting work, um, but it's a very small niche. Well, I like that framework, and I love the distinction between trends and disruptions. And uh, I think there are a lot of people that are those, I just want to see what's next, and then the people that actually do commercialize that. And so it's it's rarely spoken, but it is a very distinct skill set, and it's something I don't love doing as much either, and it's why I've grown up in marketing and always looked at sort of what's, what's out there. But thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned the books, and, and I do want to speak to that. Uh, I think the first book, if I'm not mistaken, the first of 10, uh, which is incredible, is you did a best-selling book called Get There Early, Sensing the Future to Compete in the Presence. 
present. It was selected as one of the top business books of 2007. Uh, tell us a little bit about that book. Um, so Get There Early was uh, a methodology book. Basically, after I was the president for eight years, um, I wanted to write down how we do what we do and how uh, that's now been turned into a uh, a course to teach people how to become futurists. So we do it four times a year. It's on our website called Foresight Studios. So for three days, we teach people how to be futurists. And that book was the beginning of that methodology. It wasn't actually my first book. That was number five or six. <laughs> the first book I wrote was all about um, electronic media and electronic meetings uh, in the late 70s. And it was about the early days of the internet. Uh, we had a prototype system in those days with functionality very much like Facebook. It was just that it, it, you know, real people couldn't use it. It was all defense contractors on the ARPANET. So we focused on NASA and universities and USGS and the like. And that first book was about meeting virtually and the trade-offs of choosing which medium is good for what. Um, and that was my early career focused on virtual meetings and uh, video conferencing, uh, what was called auto, office automation in those days, you know, that kind of thing, where I was usually the social scientist on a team of engineers developing a prototype, and I would design the uh, evaluation structures. Uh, and then with Get There Early, I started writing more broadly, and then later, um, more recent books, and my current book, I focus more on leadership and, and leaders. Yeah, I, I'm rereading my question. I'm not sure I came up with the first piece. But anyway, no problem. one of 10 um, and, and clearly a critical one. Uh, you do have a recent book and it's called The New Leadership Literacies. And you were kind enough to show me something very cool as we walked in. You have a copy of it here. And uh, similar to album covers of the old days, uh, where you could actually put useful things like artwork and lyrics on there. You've created sort of this um, ecosystem, uh, little mini poster that's the new leadership literacies, and it talks about what those are. And it's got enough just to sort of um, pique your interest. So, and I believe you said that you've done this for three books. Um, you're told by your publisher that you're the first to do this. I've never seen this personally. Uh, usually it's just some pull quotes and then wasted space as we talked about. But let's talk a little bit about this book where you're looking 10 years ahead. Um, and in particular, and this is where I'm really interested is you talk about new future competencies. And I know your one of your overall threads is I think a lot of what we teach in schools today, both um, you know pre-college and then in college, don't necessarily set people up for success like maybe they did at one point in time. So that's a meaty question, but um, let's talk about this book and sort of some of these uh, future competencies, you know, particularly as it pertains to leadership. Sure. Um, so I happened to be at the Army War College for the first time the week before 9-11. Um, I'm not a military guy, but that ended up changing my life because I was there with a group of Deloitte senior partners and some CEOs, and we were lectured to. <laughs> and I um, respectfully made some suggestions about how the military and business could learn from each other. Then, of course, 9-11 uh, happened, and the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which uh, I had been told going in was the slowest moving the least innovative and the most hierarchical of all the military graduate schools, the Army War College started referring to itself as VUCA University <laughs> for volatile, uncertain, complex, 
and ambiguous. And I said, whoa, that's interesting. So I offered and then was invited to do a series of exchanges there where I bring CEOs and bring senior leaders in and have exchanges around leadership and strategy. And that led to a book called Leaders Make the Future, a second edition of that book with the Center for Creative Leadership in, in North Carolina and global. And then this book, which is, I've realized um, that um, Leaders Make the Future was a really very good selling book and it's been used all around the world. But it's, it's focused on skills. And what I realized is skills aren't enough to thrive in the VUCA world. You really need literacies, which are, I'm kind of coining a word there. It's not the usual use of the word literacy. It means as a practice or a discipline or even a worldview that includes skills or includes competencies, but it's really much more. It's a literacy. So the core literacy is the ability to look 10 years ahead and then work backwards. So it's really future back strategy instead of starting from the present and kind of inching your way out. Because in a VUCA world, that just doesn't work very well. It's too much noise in the present. So in the digital space, for example, if you want to understand the future of digital, don't go to CES and don't read Wired Magazine. I mean, those are both good for certain things, but not for understanding the future because there's too much noise. But if you leap 10 years out and work backwards, that works much better. Then the off that core literacy, there's what I call voluntary fear exposure, which is basically gaming and gameful engagement. Um, there's leading what I call shape-shifting organizations, which are the organization of the future, which have no center, grow from the edges, hierarchies come and go, can't be controlled, but can be guided. And, and the military knows how to do this better than the rest of us, especially through special forces and their, their concepts of commander's intent or mission command or flexive command. And then in these shape-shifting organizations, you've got to be better when you're not there physically than when you are. So it's being there without being there. And finally, you've got to be super healthy. So it's, you know, many leaders today are just kind of marginally healthy, and it's kind of nice if you have it. But 10 years from now, you're going to have to be super healthy. And I mean physically, I mean mentally, and I mean even spiritually, although not necessarily religiously, but to be grounded in the face of the VUCA world. So those are what I call the literacies, and those are summarized on the map. And I've got, it's a simple structure in the book. I've got 10 core chapters, one about the literacy the way it is now, and one about where it will be 10 years from now. So I like that. I particularly like, and I'm a big believer in the healthy piece. And one of the things that I think you hear is a constant theme from coaches and, and people that sort of help teach leaders is that um, it's the ability to meditate and really sort of transcend, right? It's the getting rid of ego, but not a not a necessarily a religious thing. I do have a question, though, to drill down on um, back to school. And I have a son right now who's 16, and he, he has had a really hard time with sort of the traditional curriculum. He was He's watched a bunch of your videos and was quite intrigued by everything that you've talked about. What can schools be doing, both college and high schools, uh, middle schools, how can they be adopting some of these things? Because they are heady topics. And I think that uh, the way some of the teachers are trained today, they're not necessarily equipped to take this on. And, you know, as a society, we're a little antiquated, right? We like to live by the, the uh, paths of the past. Yeah, definitely true. Um, so I'm really optimistic about learning over the next decade. 
I'm not very optimistic at all about schools. Um, and we just did a new custom forecast for Southern New Hampshire University, which is one of the universities that's really making amazing progress in this space in both virtual and real-time or in-person learning, uh, this SNHU, which I didn't know about a year ago. But we just did a project for them on the college student of the year 2030, and that's going to become public this fall. But I, I think there are cases now. But the key variable I'd like to share with you is about the kids, including your son. Those that are 22 or less in 2018, those are the true digital natives. Uh, it's not the millennials. It's 22 or less. And it's because of uh, what, what I call the 2010 threshold. In about 2010, the iPhone and the iPad had brought us from thinking about separate technology tools to a media ecology. And if you became an adult in 2010 or later, you're just different. And the younger you are, the more different you are. So that's what I call the 2010 threshold. Now those young people are 22 or less. That's the front edge of that threshold. But the younger you are, the stronger the effect. So those are the kids that will create the digital transformation. And those are the kids that will learn in different ways, mostly learn through gaming. You know, So video gaming, what we think of as video gaming today, 10 years from now, we're going to think of that as the most powerful learning medium in history because the interfaces are so good. I mean, the interfaces in today's video games are roughly 10x anything we have in offices, even if we use Macs or the Surface. So really intense digital interfaces, which make learning much more powerful. So that's why I'm so optimistic about learning. I'm optimistic about young people, 22 or less, if they have hope. If they don't have hope, if they're hopeless, they are at risk to be depressed or even dangerous. Those are the young people that are recruited for extreme religions or terrorist groups. But there's a power there, and it's a learning uh, power. Um, and educational institutions are kind of stuck and challenged to deal with that. And we need, we need essentially to learn from our kids, and that's always been the case, but it's never been so dramatically important. Now, the elite universities and the elite schools will be fine. The, the poor and the weak universities and schools, they're probably gone. They're probably gone. And, and the middle of the road, those are the ones that have to reimagine themselves. Well, it's fascinating. And I, I love this because it's rare that you get this fresh a view on things. I do have to do a, um, I would like to drill down on this a little bit too, which is um, I am trying desperately to learn from my kids. I have a 19-year-old daughter and a 16-and-a-half-year-old son and an 11-year-old, and I watch them constantly and, and ask them questions constantly. And I was fortunate to get into you know digital and social media early days. My question, though, is I hear two things, especially from folks that are more traditional. One is that um, reading has become a lost art, right? So if you're not reading books, then... You know, you're you're not going to sort of progress. And the other is that this, and I'm holding up my smartphone, has become too much of a distraction. You know, kids in particular are spending too much time. So it sounds like I'm not putting words in your mouth that you're saying reading is bad, but would love your take on reading physical books versus learning from gaming and video, et cetera. And, you know, the idea of having this, you know, multimedia ecosystem in your hand um, and, and the role that they'll play with these 22 and under uh, children. 
So there's real issues here about smartphones and about kids and about, uh, I always come back to hope, you know, and the, and, and the importance of hope in the context of that. I still think reading is really important and reading books is really important. And with little kids, I think reading to them is still a very powerful way to learn. Um, I'm not as worried about screens as a lot of psychologists and pediatricians are, um, because if you think 10 years ahead, anything can be a screen. Um, so there's temporary issues around screens, but the real issue is what are they doing through the medium? How are they learning? How are they experiencing the world? And when everything is a screen, um, it's really the end of cyberspace the way we know it. It means that you're always online, even if you're off, if you choose to be. So it's really a filter for the physical world. Um, and the challenge now, I think, is that the a lot of, uh, you know, I'm a social scientist by training. A lot of my colleagues are viewing the smartphone and kids as a kind of problem that adults need to solve. I think that's a really disturbing way to think of it. The way I think of it instead is we've got a new medium which has pros and cons. And we're starting to learn what those pros and cons are. And as a parent, you need to sort those out. So for example, you shouldn't use green screens before you go to sleep. That applies to kids and it applies to, to adults. But it's just, that's good common sense and good uh, smartphone hygiene. Um, you shouldn't play first person shooters with strangers uh, if you're a kid over very limited periods of time, but you don't want to do that. Um, but most of today's video games are actually collaborative and they're teaching social skills. Um, so it's true, I think, that for many kids, they're not learning the ability to communicate in person because there's so many intermediate so many media, electronic media uh, alternatives. But the way I view that is, and I've got a, a big chart in the book about the options for communication and for learning, uh, and it's all in a time and place matrix. So it's there's same time, same place, which is face-to-face, -face, and then there's different times, different places. There's the same place, different times, the same time, different place. And there's any time, any place, and and that's the smartphone and FaceTime and the like. So if you think about that, there's five media options. If you're more than 22, you're probably better at in-person than if you're less than 22. If you're less than 22, you're probably better at four of the five. So therefore, uh, to me, a more healthy way to look at this is to say, yeah, there's problems with the smartphone and there's problems with video games. Yeah, yeah, let's face up to those. But view it as a, as a cross-generational learning opportunity. In fact, a historic cross-generational learning opportunity. And make a deal with your kids. Um, I'm, I'm willing to share with you what I know about in-person, and I think it's really important, but I need to learn the other four media options from you. And, and, and they're not necessarily going to invite you into their world. I'm not saying this is going to be easy, but instead of viewing this as, as kind of Apple's problem or the internet problem or uh, blaming the kids, which is what many of my psychology colleagues want to do. It's not the kids' problem. It's a new medium, 
And we got to learn from each other and make smart choices. And if you're more than 22, we have license to play the wisdom game. You know, we can we can help make smart and moral choices, but we got to go there with our kids. And you don't want to do things like limiting screen time. I mean, that's just a rather silly, it's understandable. I shouldn't say it's silly. It's an understandable but very limited measure. The important thing is not screen time. It's what they do with the screen time. Because 10 years from now, everything's going to be a screen. Well, that's, I actually subscribe to that. And I feel like people do get wrapped around the axle on that one. And it's sort of like um, sheltering your kids from certain things. And I always felt like growing up, my parents were wonderful parents, but they did stop me from doing certain things, which of course, the second I could do them, I went off and did them. Where our belief is, my wife and me, that if we let the kids or expose them to things and give them guidelines, that then it isn't nearly as big a deal. So, um, I do want to ratchet up just a little bit because uh, in listening to some of your videos, uh, I know as a keynoter, you talk a little bit about health horizons. I don't know if this is what you were alluding to before about the need for healthy executives in the future, but maybe let's spend a little bit more time on that because I do feel like people don't take that seriously enough yet. I think there's a vanguard of people that do, but there's a lot of people that don't. So that's true. That's true. And, um, you know, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that if you're going to be able to thrive in the VUCA world 10 years from now, you're going to have to be not just healthy, but super healthy. And the good news is we've got great tools for doing that. So most of the senior executive groups I talk to now, half of the people in the audience have Fitbit or Apple Watch or some kind of body sensor to help them make smarter health choices. 10 years from now, the same kind of group, all of them will have body sensors if they want them, and half of them will have embedded body sensors. Um, now the challenge, there's all kinds of data, the challenge is then you're gonna need somebody to help you make sense of all that data. So in the book, I outline four different approaches to super healthy living. And there's what I call the East Coast approach, which is the corporate athlete. It just got bought by Johnson & Johnson. More programmatic, more gymnasium-based uh, nutrition, and there's a spiritual discipline, all focused on energy management. Then there's what I call the West Coast approach, very neuroscience-based, developed by Kelly Traver, the physician uh, who used to be the chief medical officer at Google. And what she's done is create a, a profile that help you assess how your brain works to help make decisions about healthy living. And some of us are motivated by competition, some by by goals, you know, some by games. You know, there's different and she's got a like a structure of ten options. Then there's uh, what I call the global approach, which is was originally funded by National Geographic, and they funded a journalist, Dan Buettner, to go all around the world, find the places where people live the longest, healthiest lives, but died the quickest. And, you know, that's, in fact, I think that's what we all want. We want a long, healthy life, but then a really a quick, painless death. And what we have in America oftentimes is a, is a, you know, pretty long, um, but rather unhealthy life, and then a long, painful death. Um, so what 
they do in what's come to be called the Blue Zones work is to do profiles of those. And I've got the profile in the book. And, and the key things are things like the 80% rule, um, which is stopping eating when you're 80% full. Um, and what they say is, no, no, it's not about gymnasiums, it's not about neuroscience, it's about walking, preferably in hilly climates, and it's about belongingness. And they've got a kind of model that reminds me of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then finally, there's what I call the integrated approach, which came out of Brad Jacobs' work at UCSF. And it's, it's got a very nice framework that's in the book about um, healthy living and the practices of healthy living. And I don't suggest that any of those is right. I, I, it's more you got to figure out something that works for you. And I just laid these out as four alternatives. But the key thing is that to thrive in the world, the VUCA world, you're, you're just going to have to be super healthy. So that's got to be built into your work practices. And there's more and more companies now that are doing that. Uh, you mentioned meditation and mindfulness. It's, it's, it, it, there's no one right, right way to do that, but you've got to have a discipline and you've got to have a work environment that, that supports that. And you've got to have leaders that, that give the folks uh, time to do that. Physical exercise is the one thing that everybody agrees on. So there's debates about everything except the importance of uh, physical exercise, aerobic if you can do it, on pretty much a daily basis. So you know it's kind of minimum two or three days a week, but really it's, it's daily uh, in terms of movement. I love that. Um, and I can say as someone that got a dog about a year and a half ago, <laughs> he is my you know, physical activity every good. single day. And uh, so um, that, that's great thinking. Uh, well, dogs are good, too. That's a, dogs are a good health indicator. Oh, well, and I'm not shocked to hear that, but uh, maybe tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, it's really interesting research about how um, petting a dog can actually reduce your blood pressure and kind of uh, calm you. And uh, it probably depends on which dog, but, <laughs> but, but having a dog generally is correlated with longer, healthier lives. There's some debate in the literature, but I think generally I, I believe it. Well, I mean, they are such... Um in most cases, loving animals. And there is that therapeutic element of it and um, make you laugh regularly, right? And, and they're sort of like the little kid that never grows up. So um, I, I, I do like that. Um, this is the place where I do want to shift gears a little bit, although I could talk about the future stuff forever. Um, but I like to ask all of our guests these questions. And the first is, what's one thing people would be surprised to learn about you that you're willing to share? Um, so it probably would be surprising. Um I went to divinity school and I have the academic qualifications to be ordained. I just didn't do that. So I became a futurist because of a experience I had when I was at divinity school and I was a, I was a um, research assistant for the professor organizing it. And I literally got to carry the bags for the world's leading futurists. And this was uh, this would have been probably 1969 or 70, and and I thought, whoa, that's what I want to do, <laughs> and somehow I've been able to to do it. Um, but that's probably something most people wouldn't know. And when I when I started here at the institute, that was viewed as somewhat suspect because particularly here in Silicon Valley, I was the first PhD level social scientist hired at the institute. It was run by engineers and mathematicians and uh, you know very hard sciences people. Um, so it was viewed with some skepticism. 
But now uh, it's pretty obvious that you're going to do a forecast of the future. You've got to consider religion and spirituality for better or worse. Um, so I'm not an advocate of any brand of religion. Um, I'm not even an active member of any religion. I've never been ordained, but I'm a student of all the different variations. And that's probably not typical of most people who are futurists. No, but I, I will agree that I think um, one of my coaches that I had had that spiritual element. I consider myself a very spiritual person, not necessarily religious. And I think there is something there that really can help unlock this greater understanding and greater sort of belief and, and maybe faith in, in humankind. I will say as a funny side note, so you're dressed very uh, chicly in a black uh, shirt and pants and all you're missing, I guess, as I'm looking at you now, is if you had the white collar, we could uh, we could make you a priest. Um, the second question I want to ask, and, and you have written a number of books, so I would say, first of all, read some of Bob's books. I'm going to uh, specifically sit down now and read some of these because my interest has really peaked. Uh, but any books that you've read over the last year or two that you'd like to um, share with the guests? So there's there's two that, that have uh, come out since uh, the new leadership literacies came out just six months ago. Uh, one of them I really like is called uh, Political Tribes by Amy Chua. Uh, and Amy is the uh, fascinating Yale Law School professor. Um, I met her when we were doing a conference together in Istanbul for McKinsey. Uh, but she's the one who wrote the uh, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. So she tends to tackle these big topics. And this one is all about political tribes, and it's just great. And what she argues is that we're becoming an increasingly tribal society in the U.S., and it's easier for politicians and religions to exploit those tribes than it is to bring them together. So it's a very dangerous time in those regard, in that regard, and, and she tells that story really well. The second new book that I like a lot is called Old Power, New Power. Um, and it's by two authors who kind of grew up with um, social movements like Black Lives Matter or um, whole, it includes businesses like Airbnb and other, other groups that kind of started from rather than thinking of, um, of power as current, thinking of it as currency, kind of electrical currency more. And it's thinking old power, new power. And what they, it's very much like what I call shape-shifting organizations. But they do a really nice job in the book of profiling this shift from old power to new power. And it's very clear that at a high level, looking 10 years out, we're moving from hierarchies to more like what we call shape-shifting. Hierarchies will still work as long as you're in a slow-moving, more predictable environment. But, but I really like the old power, new power paradigm, and it starts really good conversations. Well, those both sound fascinating. So uh, people add those to your, your lists. Um, the last question, and I am really curious to, to hear the answer to this one that I like to ask everyone is imagine you're stranded on a deserted island. You can only bring one album with you. Uh, which would it be and why? Yeah, yeah. One album or one one album. Wow. One album. Wow. Tough. Um, so um, so I grew up with rock and roll. So and I was in a rock folk rock band in graduate school. So I play guitar. Uh, not very well, but I play guitar. And um, so Beatles were uh, kind of so if I if I had to choose only one album, it might well be Sgt. Pepper. But um, but I've become a Pearl Jam fan, uh, and their very first album, Ten, is still one that I love. Um, I've become more currently now an Arcade Fire um, 
fan, um, and uh, their current album's really interesting. Uh, and I become an Imagine Dragons fan. Their new album, uh, which includes a song called Believer, um, uh, is uh, one that that I really that I really like. So my the genre that I usually end up with on Apple Music or Spotify, the genre is usually called alternative. And I'd, I'd probably pick one of those. So I, I like classical music, but if I only had to choose one, I'd probably keep coming back to a Beatles or a Pearl Jam um, album. Well, those are all excellent choices. And actually, I like all four of those bands as well. Um, actually had a cool experience at CES several years ago where uh, our friends at Intel invited us in. It was about a 200-person crowd, and we get to see Imagine Dragons playing Unplugged. So I, I look back to that fondly, and that reminds me of that. Well, anyway, this has been fantastic, and I literally could spend hours talking to you, Bob. Um, I've been spending time now with Bob Johansson, who's a distinguished fellow at the Institute for the Future, multi-time author. This is Aaron Strout, the uh, host of the What to Know podcast, uh, CMO of W2O. Thank you so much for giving me this time, Bob. Thank you. Happy to help you make the future. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know. <laughs>